Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLA and FM. Streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so that anywhere in the known or unknown universe, as you travel in a sanitized airplane far away from your home, you can pick us up on your digital device. The magic of podcasts. We're really happy to have a special guest, a special friend with us today. Valerie Martin has spent seven election cycles working on competitive campaigns across the country. She specializes in fundraising, campaign management, and media. For the last six years, Valerie worked on national campaigns to create television advertising, provide media trainings for candidates, because candidates need media trainings, develop campaign plans because candidates don't know how to plan campaigns, and offer strategic advice because candidates don't know how to think strategically. Previously, Valerie managed two U.S. Senate races, spent the 2010 cycle managing a well-known open seat U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire. She raised money for governor's race in Georgia, Claire McCaskill's 2006 upset victory in Missouri. McCaskill was one of six new Democrats who, by the way, tipped the balance of the Senate toward Democratic control in the 2006 elections, which is why we have Obamacare today. And in 2004, after serving as finance director for several congressional races, Valerie led Allison Schwartz's finance team in her successful open seat bid in PA 13, raising more than four point six million dollars in that hotly contested race at a time when that was unheard of money in congressional races. Valerie Martin is a star and she is with us today on Off the Record. Valerie, welcome to radio. Thank you, my friends. It is very good to be here with you both today. Yeah, so so we're doing the Zoom thing because that's how we're doing radio these days. From from whence do we find you? Where are you Zooming from? My home office in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, man, Chicago. You know, that's where Mayor Daley famously gave the advice that our president has followed. Daley said vote early and often. And the president, of course, has said vote twice. So, you know, they, they sort of came from the same camp. But listen, you're advising races all across the country. Uh, voters are just beginning to pay attention, just beginning. And we have 54 days to the election. And soon they will pay attention. And your ads are going to start hitting the airwaves and social media if they haven't already begun hitting those waves. So are you finding any common threads across the races or emerging key themes that you're seeing in 
the election? And is there maybe a race to your arm that you think illustrates what this election is all about, down ballot from the presidential level? Well, I think a lot of what we're seeing is, is fairly obvious. You know, voters having huge concerns about the global pandemic, about, you know, serious economic insecurity. Uh, there are also issues like healthcare that have been dominating elections for the last couple cycles, but that issue isn't going anywhere. And I think voters are deeply concerned about that. Um, I think there's another sort of thread um, common thread that we've been seeing in the last couple election cycles and is really big this year is money in politics. Uh, voters who are actually on both sides of the aisle and, and particularly independents who are deeply concerned that the special interests are running the show in Washington. And I think that um, those are sort of the big issues that we're really seeing play out thematically across the country. I also think there's some interesting and concerning attacks being made on Democrats about defunding the police and some other things that uh, sort of, you know, that I think are, are following on the coattails of the president's messaging on um, uh, sort of his quote unquote concern for this suburbs uh, that, uh, that is sort of playing out to um, up and down the ballot. So let me just follow up. You know, oh, Matt, oh, Matt, I know you have a question, but let me let me just follow up on that. I mean, I I hear you on the issues about healthcare and the economy and COVID. Uh, I get that, but I mean, I've talked about money in politics when I've when I've run, and and while I hear some, uh, you know, people like to talk about it, I think. But I don't know that anybody really expects anybody to do anything about it. Is it is it an issue that is is important enough so that in your media strategy and in your strategic advice to candidates, you're actually advising people um, to talk about it? Absolutely. Uh, we do a lot of work for a terrific organization called End Citizens United which has essentially become the, the leader in electoral politics for campaign finance reform. Right. And they've done remarkable research. They've done um, uh, really terrific work in advising clients about or candidates to talk about this issue. And here's how it can resonate with voters. One of the things that, um, you know, Paul, I think you're right. I think a lot of voters are kind of jaded about it. You know, they say like Washington's this mess, this swamp, it's this cesspool, uh, special interests are running the show, what's really anybody going to do about it? But I think particularly for, for Democratic candidates who are uh, saying they aren't going to take lobbyist money or they aren't going to take uh, corporate PAC money, you know, uh, um, I think it's something like 85% of all um, the, the uh, frontline and challenger races this year are uh, in the House side the Democratic candidate has taken a pledge that they won't take corporate PAC money. And that resonates with voters. I think it shows voters that, hey, I'm willing to pay a price. Uh, I'm not just going to say I'm not for money, you know, uh, that I'm, I'm not going to be beholden to the special interest. I'm actually going to do something about it, hold my own feet to the fire. And it's a way for candidates to show that they are different on the issue and that they are going to Washington to work for actual voters instead of corporate special interests. 
you know, one of the things that that brings up, um, you know, as you talk about another issue that, that you're seeing resonate across the country is that in presidential election years, people tend not to think about the other 468 federal races that are playing out, not to mention governors, other state positions, um, mayor's races, which are incredibly impactful. So um, now you, you have a company, um, you, you do media, uh, it's, uh, it's called Silversmith Strategy. So you, you have your fingers in a lot of races, a lot of campaigns that are part of that 468 landscape. So one of the issues that, that, that I hear a lot from friends in the pollster community is that it's really hard to separate voters' views on specific issues from their feelings about the black hole at the center of our politics in Donald Trump. What are you seeing across the races uh, that, that you're involved in? Um, are those things separable? Does it all ultimately come down to Trump at the end of the day? Or are the candidates and campaigns that you're working with able to sort of separate themselves and and drive other messages that, that voters will pay attention to? Well, I, I think certainly a lot of this election is about Trump. <laughs> and a lot of this election is about uh, the handling of the coronavirus. It's about economic insecurity that we're facing as a result of that. And so I think a lot of the big issues are really sort of tied in quite tightly with voters' opinions of Donald Trump which are pretty well, at this point, solid. Uh, you know, there are very few undecided voters there on the presidential side. There are very few folks who just really haven't made up their mind or don't know what to think about Donald Trump and Joe Biden, for that matter. I mean, people have really, that cake is baked in a lot of ways. But I think in the House and Senate races um, that, that are playing out across the country, it goes beyond Donald Trump. And I think the biggest problem for Republicans is that they, as a party, don't have a platform. We saw this at the RNC. It was really just That's this, a literal uh, thing. It's right. right? They, yes, literally, they do not have a platform. And I, I think that's really just emblematic of that the party is so focused on Trump. And it's all about his ego and his whims. And, and frankly, um, it's sort of become this cult of personality. And so I think that is a huge challenge for Republicans is that there's sort of no core unifying values or issues or platform for their candidates. And a lot of them are having to sort of figure this out for themselves, right? Um, and I think to the Democrats credit, we, there, there is a cohesive message um, and people are rallying around Biden and it's a little bit easier for I think Democrats uh, this cycle, uh, fortunately, on the messaging side. So I think that is really helpful. And you know, it, it comes back to you know we talked about the uh, economic insecurity and um, uh, voters' concerns about healthcare, for example. You know, healthcare is an issue where Democrats actually are kind of leading the way. You know, they have they have a sort of a better reputation. Voters trust tend to trust Democrats a little bit more on an issue like healthcare than they do uh, Republicans. So seeing all these issues play out, like it's impossible to entirely separate Trump from each one of these issues. But at the same time, 
things are playing out a little bit differently in each race, uh, depending on the candidates and what each of them are, are talking about and focusing on. So um, I have just been through a down ballot uh, race in the age of the pandemic. And uh, the landscape for communication in the age of the pandemic, depending on who you're trying to reach in terms of age and status and identity of voters, is pretty fascinating. Um, it's, a, it's a brave new world that nobody frankly, was really prepared for. And all of a sudden, in March of this year, campaigning as we knew it went belly up. Um, no handshaking, I, no babies to kiss, no groups of passionate flags and sign-waving people to uh, inspire, at least if you're a Democrat. Um, and no parades, Paul. No, no, no per Fourth of July parades. No Fourth of July parades. I mean, it was it was a different landscape thrust upon us. And so, one of the questions for those who have the money to pay for communication is, how much is advertising really breaking through these days versus what folks are picking up in the interwebs in the in the free cyberspace on the facebook snapchat twitter instagram world um and who's paying attention to to those worlds and are people doing it by text are they doing it by i mean what's going on out there um uh and and is it different at the presidential level where we know that that uh, you know, Joe Biden just raised a record amount of money in August, more than $300 million. And we know that the President T. Rump has already spent huge gobs of money. I mean, gobs of money, um, and, but totally abandoned, for example, television in some key states and only gone digital. What's going on out there? Yeah. Well, to answer the second part of your question first, I do think it's different on the presidential level than it is for anybody else up and down the ticket. Uh, you know, the, the earned media surrounding a presidential election is just, it's unparalleled and it's massive. And, you know, you mentioned Biden, how successful his fundraising in August was, but, you know, you rewind about six months ago in the Democratic primary and he wasn't fundraising leader and you had Bloomberg spending, you know, half a billion dollars and, you know, it, it was not, you know, paid advertising is, is always going to be important, but um, the, the earned media that you can get on the presidential side is just, it's, it's just completely a different animal. So we're going to take a short break. We're talking with Valerie Martin of Silversmith Strategies here on WKXLAM and FM Off the Record with this very smart Matt Robeson and not-so-smart Paul Hodes. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after this to pick up where we left off with Valerie Martin talking about communicating in the pandemic age. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com. Podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. My co-host, Matt Robeson, writes for The Alternate and has a blog called The More Perfect Union Forum. Com. What a lovely aspirational blog it is, where he writes trenchant and deep thoughts, deep thoughts about what's really going on in politics. And along that line, our guest today is Valerie Martin of Silversmith Strategies, who specializes in fundraising, campaign management, and media. Before the break, Valerie was explaining how campaigns in the pandemic age are speaking to voters. We had taught, gave her a short bit to talk about the presidential race before I cut her off so that our sponsors could have their word. And now, Valerie, I want to go back and let you finish your answer about how communications and paid advertising or not are working in this age of COVID. Well, the short answer is that it's working well. You know, over the past uh, sort of 10 years or so, there's obviously been trends where, you know, digital communication is becoming more and more important and people talk about sort of the waning influence of broadcast television, for example. But I think in this, in this year, we've seen something pretty extraordinary. And because people are home more, traveling less, uh, they are much more on their devices, watching television, particularly watching news in a way that they haven't before. Uh, television and digital have become incredibly effective mediums um, this election cycle. And even, even more so than, than in the past uh, couple years. You know, for example, um, in the first uh, sort of couple months of the pandemic during March and April, as lockdowns were happening across the country, we saw the national evening news get essentially Monday night football ratings. And believe me, that you know CBS and NBC and ABC evening news hadn't seen those ratings in a very long time. And so, and we're just seeing sort of people are they are wanting to consume more news, and that has been really helpful. Additionally, and you know, unfortunately, because of um, economic challenges, a lot of more traditional corporate advertisers are pulling back a little bit. And it's uh, in some places reduced the cost of advertising, which has been really helpful to a lot of cash strapped uh, campaigns out there. And so um, it's both become a little bit less expensive in some places and in some uh, periods in the last six months or so. And it's also become more efficient and effective and reaching a broader audience. Uh, and then, you, you know, you mentioned things like texting and mail and uh, traditional phone calling, like a lot of that um, is, is still incredibly powerful. And I think that uh, a lot of campaigns have done a good job of making that shift from the old fashioned sort of door knocking volunteer operation, shifting that into things like texting, social media outreach, and the ever important phone calling. So I want to talk a little bit about what you do uh, kind of day in and day out. And, you know, when I talk to people who are kind of politics adjacent, they're not operatives, they're not professionals like you, they tend to think that the job of communicating in a, in a, in a political context is a lot easier than it really is. Uh, and I can, I can tell all of our listeners, it is 
hard. It is actually incredibly hard to tell a good story in 30 seconds that captures a candidate and actually moves voters. And you have to think it's three-dimensional chess. You have to think about what message are you trying to convey? How are you going to effectively convey it so that you actually change people's behavior? It is, and if you want to see some really good examples of doing that effectively, I, I would really encourage people, go to the Silversmith Strategies website, Google it, and check out the ad that, that Val did for Congressman Greg Stanton and Connecticut Treasurer Sean Wooden. Now, I, I don't want to spoil it. People can look. You tell two very different stories in those ads. So pick one. Take, I, I want you to take our listeners through, or, or both, or pick a different one entirely if you, like, if you like a better example. Take our listeners through how a professional does this. How do you decide what's the message we need to convey to move the voters? How do you construct that story, and how do you make it come together in an ad? I think it's a great question. You know, you brought up that it, an ad is only 30 seconds, and that goes by awfully fast when you're trying to communicate a lot of information to voters. And particularly in races where you only get an ad or two, right? You only have a couple bites at that apple. It really is challenging. You know, in some races, big congressional races and Senate races, et cetera, you, you're getting three, four, five, maybe up to a dozen ads. Um, you have an, an opportunity to build a narrative arc um, and a storyline for your candidate. Um, often in the case for a sort of more down ballot, even a statewide election, like for example, Sean Wooden, who um, successfully ran for uh, treasurer of Connecticut, um, you know, the, the challenge is if you only have a couple ads how do you use that time wisely and efficiently and effectively? Um, and what was sort of unique about this ad is uh, it was really a lot of fun. And it's an ad that a lot of people in Connecticut uh, came up to Sean and talked to him about, and they still reference it uh, to him all the time. And, um, but what we tried to do in that ad, and I think in, in most of our ads where we're introducing a candidate, is demonstrate not only their resume and their qualifications, but a little bit about what makes them unique, about who they are. Um, and you want to not only demonstrate that this candidate is qualified and experienced and ready for the job, but also that to get a sense that they're a good person, that they're someone you can trust. Uh, and I think that um, in this ad, we are fond of using humor, and we tried to do that in this ad. And uh, fortunately, we have a had a terrific candidate in Sean and his boys, who are also featured in the ad, who are really willing to be good sports about it and have a lot of fun with this. Um, but in this ad, it was about introducing Sean as someone who had a, you know, resume, a, a depth of experience in. Uh, being a good steward of taxpayer dollars, which obviously is a prerequisite for being treasurer of a state, but additionally that he's someone who's, you know, kind of like your own dad or kind of like, you know, someone you do trust with your money because um, he's, he's someone who is uh, turning off the lights when he leaves the room and making sure the thermostat is nice and low during the winter and he's going to be pinching pennies along the way. And I think that that's the kind of, um, 
the, the overarching goals, you know, we want to connect voters with this candidate as well as demonstrate their resume, their experience. And anytime you can do a little bit of storytelling, I think is valuable. I think that really helps voters sort of get a handle on who the candidate is. And uh, it, it, it can be a tall order to do in just 30 seconds, but I think when it all comes together, um, you, can, you can actually do quite a bit. So um, now I wanna talk about a very sensitive subject. Um, because it's a subject I have some experience with, uh, both past experience and recent experience, and that is losing. Uh, the L word, not that L word, losing. Now, I've won races and I've lost races, and you've won races and lost races, and in fact, we've lost some of the same races, and we did it together. So, so here we are. How do you think about and deal with that? with candidates who work so hard, put it all on the line, do everything right, put themselves out there. And yet, because politics is so random and there's so much that you do not, cannot control, and you just run these an incredible race and then you come in second. How do you deal with that? And, and how do you deal with that with your candidates? Yeah, well, and, and I will say one of the wisest things I've ever read on this topic was written by Donna Brazil, who wrote a, a really terrific letter, she called it Letter to the Losers, and she published it on CNN, uh, gosh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And she talks about what it's like to lose. And I think part of it is just you have to accept that you're going to feel lousy for a while, um, and you're going to be brokenhearted and disappointed. And then it gets better, it gets easier, and you recognize the value of the job you did um, and, and the contribution that you're making to the country, to the conversation, to your local community. And I think usually for a lot of people, um, whether you're a staffer or a candidate, the sort of the sting lessens over time and you come to appreciate and value what you did, the contributions that you made uh, and willing, perhaps you'd be willing to get back up on the horse and do it all over again. I think it's, a, you know, for a lot of people who play like competitive sports as well, it's sort of, you know, you invest everything you have and then you lose the big game and it's heartbreaking, but then you end up going back to practice or back to join the team the next year. Um, it's, it's, I think it's about finding that value no matter what. Um, and, you know, you're right. You do lose some, but you win some. <laughs> and you have to, I think, uh, also just really learn to appreciate those wins and how special they are. Um, and I think something else you, you mentioned that there are so many variables and factors outside of your control. So whether you're a candidate or a campaign manager, um, you have to focus on the things that you are in your control and under your influence. And that can feel like a very small <laughs> piece of, uh, piece of um, what is gonna determine the outcome. But when you focus on those things, and I think if you've got pride in doing what you, that, you know, that what you did was, you did it well, you did a good job, 
you did it to the best of your ability. There's a lot of pride that comes with that. And I think it, again, lessens the sting of, uh, of a loss. You know, and, 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 oh, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get deep into this because I promised you I wouldn't. But I will tell you that one of my goals was to make sure that I ran a campaign where I was authentic, that the campaign represented who I was and what I was about in, a, in an honest and positive way, and that I avoided unforced errors. Uh, and that's a lot of what I learned from another campaign that we all that we all were on about unforced errors and and not feeling like I had at the end uh, represented myself as authentically as I wanted to. And then at the end, the rest is like it, it's up to the winds of fate in some ways. You can you can do that. But and I think many candidates do not go in appreciating the random quality of electoral politics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I would jump in and just say. One of the things that I learned over the years being involved in, in, in races is that you can do everything right and lose. Um, and you can also um, not do things particularly well, and it doesn't really matter. You're sort of surfing, um, meaning you can sort of control your direction and you can pull off some tricks, but ultimately it's really up to the ocean. Um, so, Look, I, I know, Paul, we're, we're coming up on a break here pretty soon. I mean, you're, you're the master of, of the time. So I don't want to set Valerie up for a here's a, here's a question, um, but now you can't give the answer. Let me just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the question, and then let's bridge it across the gap. All right, so here it is. Ready? This is the kind of insightful analysis that our listeners have come to expect on Off the Record. I, after years of knowing you, have – have this insightful observation. You, Val Martin, are a woman. Um, sure. Now, for people who don't know, yeah, I know, it's breathtaking. Um, now, look, so for people who don't know, the field of political advertising is disproportionately male. That's improving a little bit, but ways to go. Um, and at the time that you were running Senate races, this is, you know, the big leagues of political operative uh, work. At the time you were running Senate races, there were definitely more men managing top races than women. So what I want to ask you after the break is, are there advantages that you've seen from the perspective and the life experience that you have as a woman directing campaign or, as you do now, shaping the message that you bring to candidates? Paul, over to you with that hanging pause, that, that lob softball for Val. With that hanging chad, folks, it's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. We're speaking with top political communicator and strategist Val Martin. We'll take a short break and we'll be back after this. Hold your breath. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our show's archive for your binge listening pleasure. Revisit some of the fabulous shows, including the legendary summit between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, performed here on the radio 
by me in various tongues. We're podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes for your humorous listening pleasure. And now we're going to return with Valerie Martin, silversmith strategist. What a great name, the silversmith strategist. It's the silver-tongued Valerie Martin, strategist and communicator extraordinaire for congressional races, Senate races, all kinds of races. And we had from Matt Robeson, a hanging chad of a question, which is, in a world of political communications and media dominated by the males of the species, what's going on with you? Because you're a woman. Yeah, and I, I think, like a lot of industries, the political world has a long way to go in uh, having uh, people in positions of leadership that look like America and we need to do better in diversity. We need more black consultants. We need more brown consultants. We need more LGBTQ consultants and more women. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, I think there, there are some advantages. I do think it, it comes with, you know, being a woman and often I am the only woman on a consulting team of maybe six to 10 people. Um, and I think there's, uh, an, an advantage in the fact that it truly is a different perspective. I think oftentimes, particularly as Democrats, we are trying to talk to women voters. So who better to advise on that than, you know, a woman. <laughs> um, and so that I think, I think can be valuable. I think it's also really helpful with, for women candidates. Um, there are more and more women running for office now, and, and it's, it's getting better every year, but I think certainly in the last two election cycles, it's just been this um, embarrassment of riches of, of, of so many women running um, up and down the ballot. And I think having um, a, you know, a woman on the team can be really helpful um, for those female candidates as they're navigating their own challenges and uh, sort of being in the spotlight and the limelight in a way that they probably haven't been before in their life. Um, and so I think that there's there's a lot of sort of valuable perspective there. And um, we, we, we have a long way to go. <laughs> and I think it's, in my mind, a lot of the consultants that we have now were the staffers that we had, you know, 10, 20 years ago, right? And I think that pipeline, we've got to do a really good job in that pipeline of campaign staff, of Hill staff, of everybody, again, to promote that diversity so that um, it's not going to happen overnight, but in, in 15, 20 years, we've got a, a consultant class that just looks a lot more representative and diverse. You know, it's interesting, Val. Um, I pitched uh, an idea to a couple of different colleges a while ago to um, develop a master's program in the business of politics. Because um, there were all these, you know, 22-year-olds coming off campaigns um, wondering what to do next. And I thought, man, that would be, if you could put together a program which would include communications and media and strategy, um, you'd get a wide diversity of folks who uh, would then be able to really learn what it means, not just to manage a campaign, but to do all the jobs uh, in the business of, of politics. And now, and, and speaking of the business of politics, the business of politics can be a grind. It can be frustrating and tense and high pressure and stressful 
and enervating and it's, you, you can wake up and you can say, what am I doing with my life? Why I don't want to get out of bed this morning. Couldn't I just stay here with the covers over my head? Somebody bring me a cup of hot chocolate and a cookie and I will stay here all day and all night and nobody can find me. So why? Why do you do it? Why do we do it? What, what is it? What is it that motivates you and gets you up to do what is really a very challenging job in a challenging and uncertain profession? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've sort of been in love with politics since my first campaign right after college. Um, and I think a lot of folks like me had that same sort of first experience. It's, it's high energy, it's nonstop, it's fast paced, every day is different. There's this, um, there's this really uh, a clear end point, right? You have an election day and you know you just have to work so hard until that day and then you can stop. And I think you, you know, we're all kind of wired to some degree to say, okay, great, I can do anything for the next 100 days or 200 days or 54 uh, as it is now. Um, so I think there's, there's so much, there's a big appeal to um, this sort of, you're gonna pour everything you have into it um, uh, for until election day, and then you get to take a break and stop and step back and um, maybe go travel, not this year, but <laughs> in other years. Um, and I think, you know, for myself, it's, it really is about just knowing that you can impact not just your community, but your country in a really positive way by working for really good people. And I think as a whole, it's easy to sort of disparage politicians and our political system. But uh, when you get to know the people in this business and when you get to know the candidates, uh, it's, it's very easy to become very passionate and excited and committed. Um, you know, and, and Paul, as you know, every candidate is human. <laughs> uh, no candidate is perfect. Um, but it is an incredibly brave thing to run for office. Uh, it's an imp incredibly um, brave thing to put your name on a ballot and put your, your, your story, your record, yourself, um, in many cases, your family out there. And um, I admire that. I don't actually ever want to run for office. I'm going to leave that to <laughs> people who will be far better at it than I will. But I, I think um, that is something that uh, I just, I feel like this is my sort of way of contributing is, is helping uh, work for the people who are brave enough and, and, and wonderful enough to be willing to step forward and try to lead, try to lead and try to serve. You know, um, I don't want to put our audience to sleep, so I'm not going to talk about spreadsheets. But um, speaking of spreadsheets, you really are, one of the things I learned working, learned from you, working with you, was just how organized you are and how much power there is in uh, in really having command at a detailed level, especially on a campaign. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny, again, when, when you talk to people who are outside the campaign world, they tend to overestimate the value of, I'm air quoting here, strategy, message, kind of these highfalutin concepts. And they tend to undervalue the impact of really having command of 
the, the blocking and tackling of the campaign. And I'll tell you, you know, when I was running a, a congressional race in 2012, the consultant team of which your former company, there were folks there, uh, you know, who were members, they were convinced that the reason we won that race ultimately came down to the command we had in the spreadsheet of the budget and the plan, which is uh, something that I got from a template from you. So you're sort of a fairy godmother of that uh, race win. So congratulations for that. <laughs> where did you where did you pick that up? Um, have you have you seen that kind of organizational detail and budgetary command and all that unsexy blocking and tackling stuff? Have you seen that make a winning difference in campaigns? hundred percent. And I think going back to something we talked about earlier, where there are so many variables in a campaign that are outside of your control. The most important thing is what's in your budget, truly, because uh, I think it's the old, the old Biden quote, you know, show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities, right? I mean, it's, it's, the, the, your budget is a reflection of, of what you're going to focus on, what your priorities are. And I think that's really, really true um, in campaigns. I think that um, it, it also, you know, it, it's the, the budget is sort of the living, breathing uh, uh, sort of document that guides how you execute on your strategy and your message because uh, you can have a brilliant strategy and you can have the world's best message, but if you have no money to communicate it, or you don't know how much money you have and when you are able to communicate it, uh, it doesn't matter. It's sort of not worth the paper it's printed on. And so I think that, um, and, I, and I was lucky enough to work for some really terrific managers um, before I started managing myself. And I think that was one of the things that um, it really sort of imparted upon me uh, the importance of, of as a manager you know, you got to be in that budget document all the time because it changes all the time. Your um, your expenses change. There's constant fluctuation. Your fundraising projections are constantly fluctuating as well. Um, but it goes back to this idea of if you um, you can ha you can have a strategy. For example, we need to communicate early. Like that's, that could be like a really fundamental component of winning, but if you don't manage your budget well, you either won't have the money in the middle or the end, uh, right, of, of the campaign if you communicate early and just don't have the revenue at the end to see it through. So there is this, um, it, is, it is the unsexy part of managing, it is the boring part, but it, it's, it's how it all works. Um, and you just simply can't execute or succeed um, uh, unless you do that part of it well. And I think um, there are a lot of good managers out there now who understand that, who, who, and I think for candidates to really recognize in your manager, you're, you aren't looking for your chief strategist. You aren't looking for somebody who's gonna come in with all the answers. You want your manager to be doing the blocking and tackling and, um, you're going to get a lot of smart people giving you advice, but this is the person that is responsible for gluing it all together and making it happen. Yeah, so uh, I won't take much time, but we could tell long stories about the effects of not doing that piece well. I helped um, run a presidential campaign statewide in New Hampshire for a candidate. I prepared using your template, a budget, 
um, at the beginning of the race, never heard back until disaster had struck, sometimes many months into the race, when I, what I heard from what was the second or third finance team, oh, you had a budget? How come we never saw it? And uh, the results of the race were quite predictable because it was a good budget, a modest budget, and would have actually worked pretty well. So, but let's move on from the blocking and tackling and the numbers and the spreadsheets. Now, I want your Valerie Martin crystal ball. You've got your finger on the pulse of races all over the country. So when you look into your crystal ball, what do you see? What do you see? And can you tell us about, in, in, in two minutes or less, any individual races or the whole Senate or the, or the whole House or the presidency or anything else? Tell us what will happen. Valerie Martin of Silversmith Strategies. Folks, you will hear it here on Off the Record. Well, I certainly um, do not consider myself to be uh, as, as good at predictions as Nate Silver, for example, but I will share a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, first on the presidential level, I, I do think we haven't seen a ton of uh, movement and fluctuation in the presidential numbers um, in the last couple months. I, I do think that the cake is largely baked. There may be a few, um, uh, it, you know, there could be some surprises that happen. There always are. And additionally, we haven't had the debates yet. Those things actually do tend to um, uh, move voters. But we certainly saw, for example, the conventions didn't really change the structural the structure of that presidential race um, at all. Um, and so I don't expect a lot of changes um, in the presidential side. I, I do think that um, the House and Senate, boy, there are going to be, um, am I really out of time or should I keep going? Okay. Um, no, I, I think that, um, I, I do think the Senate, I'm very optimistic about the possibility of taking the Senate back. And I think we can pick up races in the House as well. Um, it, is, it is certainly not gonna be easy, but I think you've got a lot of really good Democratic cam candidates. I think you've got a lot of really good campaigns and I think you have a Republican party that's really struggling with its values, its basic tenets. And I think that's gonna make it really difficult for them to um, persuade voters. Folks, that's Valerie Martin of Silversmith Strategies here on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Valerie, thank you for coming on and joining us with your extraordinary insights. We are gonna take a very short break and then we are gonna come back with a very short wrap-up. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson and WKXL AM and FM. Matt Robeson, that was like a reunion. She is so good. She is so smart. Silversmith Strategies, Valerie Martin. She knows how to tell stories that help candidates win. What a pleasure. Thank you both. Absolutely. What a joy. Thank you both. Well, we're happy to have you. Folks, remember, 54 days till November 3rd. The country is on the line. Time to take 
back the soul of our country. You know we need it. Do not rest, do not sleep, do not eat. Just work, strategize, organize, vote. Vote like your lives dependent on it because your lives depend upon it. It's Off the Record with Matt Robinson and Paul Hodes. Signing off, we'll be back next week with another exciting edition of Off the Record. Bye-bye.